Welcome to this week's Investors Chronicle Personal Finance Podcast. I'm Lenora Walters and joining me today are Kate Bailey, Deputy Personal Finance Editor Investors Chronicle, Personal Finance Writer Emma Ajimang and Special Guest Philip Milton, Chartered Financial Planner at Philip J. Milton & Company. Next week marks the 16th anniversary of the launch of the first exchange-traded fund, or ETF, on the London Stock Exchange. And to mark the occasion, Kate has hosted a roundtable with some industry experts on ETFs. Kate, you and the panel covered a lot of ETF issues, but before we can delve into that, can you briefly explain what an ETF is and how it differs from a tracker fund? Yeah, so like a track fund, um, an ETF tracks an index of um, equities or bonds or whatever. Uh, but unlike a track fund, which is uh, an open-ended mutual fund, an ETF is listed um, and trades throughout the day. So, so it's repriced throughout the day and you can buy and sell at any time. So it's a bit more, a bit more flexible than a tracker. And ETFs also tend to track greater variety of indices I should say so can be more niche than a tracker fund which is often more kind of broad core exposure. Okay now ETFs also have a reputation to being low cost. Um, You talked about this with the panel Um, what did the experts in the discussion have to say about this? Yeah they said that um, I mean they are low cost and that is one of the good things about ETFs generally um, but the thing is that there are more costs to consider above the headline fee or the ongoing charge figure, which is the thing that most people tend to look at. And because ETFs are listed, there are other costs that, that come into play when you're trading them. Um, so things like the bid offer spread, the, the gap between the buy and sell price, and there are other kind of tax costs that you might incur. So they said that, yes, that is a good thing about ETFs, that they're low cost, but you need to kind of think about a total cost of ownership um, which brings into brings in more costs than just this ongoing charge figure, which um, most people use. Okay, so ETFs maybe aren't quite as cheap as they seem. Well, I mean, I think it's kind of a similar. You could say a similar thing for other listed securities. It's it's more an issue that you just need to be aware of the full picture of costs rather than just focusing on the one headline fee, which is very low. They're likely to still be a much lower cost investment than many others or active funds, uh, but it doesn't mean to say they are as low as they might initially appear. Okay. I think it's true to say as well, isn't it, that there are obviously costs even if you buy a tracker. Um, unit trust or OIC because obviously they have to buy the underlying securities and they also suffer the same taxes That's as right, well. Yeah. So uh, I don't think we should say that ETFs therefore are more expensive than uh, alternatives because it is just a different way of seeing the transparency of these costs. Yeah, that's right. Okay, yeah, no, that's a a good point. Now, Kate, um, what key tips did the panel suggest for investors looking to to include ETFs in their portfolio? Um, Well, we were kind of talking about how you might put together um, an ETF portfolio. And, I mean, in many ways, it's just similar to how you would put together any portfolio. You need to think about a kind of core building block approach where you might use a very low cost and quite broad ETF tracking a one of the most common kind of broad equity indices. And then after that, you might want to think about tweaking um, at the, the kind of edges of the portfolio or having a satellite 
uh, range of funds which do more targeted things. So that's where you might want to bring in some kind of smart beta ETFs. So those would be ETFs tracking an index weighted by something other than market cap. So for example, you're getting a value ETF to really target just value stocks or a quality ETF. So in many ways, you could use an ETF like you might use an active manager to add some alpha as as an active manager would say, to the edges of your portfolio, you could use that investment slant, um, but but buy an ETF rather than buy an active manager. Okay, now what are some of the other main ways in which ETFs can be useful in portfolios? Um, I think really it is just that flexibility. And I mean, you've got the benefit of them being very flexible to trade, and the fact they're low cost. And then it's this key concept that you can target specific markets, you can go into specific sectors, you have all of these smart beta options. I mean, that's not to say that you should just go out and buy all of the kind of sexiest, you know, sounding ETFs, but they're just so flexible. And that's, I think, the key benefit, really. Okay. Uh, did the roundtable panel suggest um, any ways you can use ETFs to take advantage in particular of current market opportunities? Um, well, I talked to Ben Seeger-Scott about this from Tilney, about what he's doing with ETFs at the moment. Um, and we discussed in particular Europe, because that's one of his favoured markets. But I mean, obviously, at the moment, no market looks uh, fail-safe. Um, so he said that he you know, is keen on Europe, but he's also a little wary of certain areas. So he's using smart beta ETFs to play a more defensive slant on the region. So he's investing in things like the iShares Eurostox 50x financials. So that's a way of taking exposure to a European index, but cancelling out the banks because he's worried about that. Um, And he's also using value tilted ETFs in Europe as well. Um, And then we also talked about the US, which he is keen on, but wary of on valuation terms and also a bit concerned about the kind of macro picture there so he's using value etfs to play that i mean there is this kind of concept that maybe value style investing is going to come back Mm. in the us after growth style has been outperforming so he's kind of taking that bet using smart beta and we also talked a bit about income um, etfs because this is one way which quite a lot of investors are keen to use them I mean, rather than or as well as just having distributing share classes, you have ETFs which target dividends. Um, they weight companies by highest dividend paid um, or most sustainable dividend growth. You know, there's a lot of different ways of doing that. And he said he's quite keen on um, on that, particularly in the US and on in general in using Spiders series of dividend aristocrat ETFs, uh, which he said he's keen on. So that's quite interesting. Yeah. Now, did the experts have any concerns about ETFs? Well, we did talk about the quite controversial area of bonds um, and ETFs. I mean, this has been a particularly big story in the US where we've had kind of record trading of high yield ETFs, particularly surrounding some of the really dramatic volatility last year. And I mean, this is quite a kind of contentious subject because ETFs are often seen as being far more liquid than bonds. Uh, The idea being you can always trade them because there's this secondary market. You don't need to be buying and selling the underlying bonds to be dealing in bonds via ETF. But, I mean, that's a bit of a misnomer. It's not true that the ETF is more liquid than the underlying. That can never 
you know, be the case ultimately. And so they did say that actually they're a bit concerned that if everybody does run for the exits and try and sell certain bond ETFs, for example, at the same time, then we could see problems as we've seen in the US. I mean, obviously, iShares, who were present as well, said, you know, that's that's not going to happen and there are safeguards in place. And in fact, what we do see in times of stress is a lot of short-term traders buying these things. So it's not a case of everyone running to leave at the same time. But, you know, that is something to be aware of and, and I think maybe something that the everyday investor probably isn't that aware of. Uh, we also touched on a few more kind of controversial topics, so things like securities lending, whereby um, an ETF can loan out, a physical ETF can loan out some of the assets it holds to generate revenue. And I mean, some people really don't like that concept that you're, you know, for example, holding a bond ETF, but actually what you're holding is equities, um, which the provider has taken as collateral. Okay. Now, Philip, do you use ETFs of your clients and um, what do you generally think of these funds? We uh, don't use them extensively. I'm very uh, aware of them. And, and there is a mind-boggling array of opportunities, really, within the ETFs. And I can see how uh, they are likely to come more to the fore, in fact, as time moves by. Um, we're only using three at the moment, which are different to, to those that have been discussed. But um, we, we've, we've taken a, um, a, a view, a defensive um, view, really, of trying to find alternatives to uh, government bonds, which we just believe are just so overbought. Um, and I, I almost can't bring myself to buy them because they represent such atrocious value. Um, and uh, partly to um, offset the uh, prospective uh, risks uh, from a systemic fallout um, through the, 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 the Brexit uncertainties, whatever one's view on that, that's purely taken an investment perspective of, of hedging oneself, I suppose. We, we've actually uh, uh, bought into ETFs, a, a gold ETF, also a, a euro and a Japanese yen ETF, um, all of which have done extremely well over the period since we've held them because they have been you know, contrarian plays. Um, but it was interesting what um, was being said on the, um, the liquidity side as well, because it, there was some thought that because of the uh, availability of ETFs for individual investors now to be able to buy stuff, and by that I literally do mean stuff like commodities, uh, the suggestion was that, um, that you know the gold spike that we had back over to nineteen hundred dollars was was partly promulgated on the back of the dramatic increase in demand because investors who otherwise might have thought about buying a commodity couldn't, but now suddenly they can. But not only do they buy it, but of course when they turn the other way, they sell it in great quantities as well. So so it can create bigger spikes and troughs, I suppose. Um, because it, it is an easy way for people to, um, uh, uh, if you like, um, participate in a particular market or stock or commodity that they otherwise wouldn't have been able to do. So, so, so you know, that, that is something I think that people need to be a little aware of as well. Mm. But then it is an advantage that, um, you know, if you're a small investor and you weren't able to buy gold because you had to buy, you know, bars and store them Absolutely and they cost right. loads, you can, for a few shares, you can buy physical gold. So right. um, it is a plus point. Yeah. Um, I mean, just thinking about the portfolio uses of ETFs, what would you say are the other main portfolio uses for ETFs other than perhaps, you know, getting you exposure to an asset that once upon a time you couldn't buy? We we haven't um, so far moved into that particular arena, but I think how I would tend to do it, and, and I, you know, I, the smart beaters, alphas, all these sorts of things, 
they, they all sound great, and I'm not trying to, to, to denigrate anybody, but in some regards, it's, it's, it's noise. And, and instead, I would say, as an investment manager, for example, uh, or a financial advisor as well, I am generally uh, value-orientated. So, for example, if I wanted to buy in the U.S., at the moment, I am actually uh, concerned about the excessive valuations of tech stocks. So, in a way, what I would be trying to do is to find an ETF or series of ETFs that might uh, re- reflect more my particular views. So if I, if I was to buy the S&P or the Dow, whatever it would be, I would end up getting lots of things that I personally might have taken a negative view on mm-hmm. rather than wanting to buy the index. So I could therefore buy an ETF that might better uh, suit my um, views or my expectations. The high yield concept, for example, was talked about in bonds. You can get that as well, obviously, with equities as well. So you can you you can basically skew your investment uh, remit um, towards your particular um, passion or uh, favoritism or where you perceive there is value by using, obviously, ETFs within an overall strategy. Mm. Do, do you have any concerns on ETFs? I think the, the, the biggest um, uh, concern that people have, I mean, there's the two types, like with gold, there's one which actually owns a lump of gold according to the value of mm. the gold that is in Physical the Physical ETFs, yeah. There is another, effectively, yeah. that says, we well, haven't got to worry about that. We've got undertakings that actually we do. So, you know, whatever happens, worst case happens, it's okay, but we got a piece of paper for that. I think they've been a bit overplayed, uh, the fears, I mean. Um, and, and, you know, you could say, are they any worse fears than any other type of fears? We talked about stock lending earlier on. Well, you know, in, index tracking funds do very nicely out of stock lending. And uh, I've got my own views on that generally as to whether or not it should be uh, allowed to the extent it is. But that's uh, for another time, possibly, about whether you short lending to the extent it happens should be tolerated or, or encouraged by the markets generally. Um, so, that it, you know, that does go on. It's not, not a unique thing with an ETF. And in fact, in theory, it should be able to cut costs on ETF because, ETFs because, you know, they are getting an income from something otherwise would, that would simply be sitting in the cupboard, so to speak. And if the undertaking is uh, from a significant financial institution, um, what does it matter? I don't say that in a glib sense, but these are the sorts of things that can happen. So I would say that in itself, to me, as long as the regulations are in place, as long as the protections are Mm. in place and adequate, that's not a reason for not using an ETF over using, um, dare I say it, a legal and general index tracking passive fund that you might merrily buy without thinking about whether or not they are actually lending stock. Okay, thank you, Philip and Kate. You can read the extracts of the ETF roundtable in this week's magazine on the website or listen to the full debate via our special podcast, Triumphs and Tantrums, UK ETFs at Sweet 16. This week's portfolio clinic features a reader who is trying to make a return of 7.5% a year via portfolio of investment trusts and mitigate volatility using smart beta ETFs. Philip, you were one of the experts who reviewed this reader's portfolio. So first of all, do you think his goal of trying to make 7.5% a year is realistic in in current market conditions? (laughs) It's always an interesting question. And again, I would almost throw out all of the background noise for this particular thing. And I would say over the very long term, 7.5% is not an inappropriate return to expect from a basket of securities, equity securities. So that's, 
if you like, that's page one of the textbook or page three of the textbook, one of those starting um, factors. And when you actually turn it around the other way and analyze it in terms of what is normal, you could say, well, normal starts with a, a dividend, and the dividend may be between 3 and 4%. At the moment, the FTSE uh, or share is just under 4% net of tax. So that's, so that's the dividend. Okay, some companies might cut dividends. Some will increase them and so on. They're always winners and losers. This is the way it goes. As long as Shell, which accounts for 10% of all dividends, doesn't cut its dividend at the moment, you know, things will carry on merrily, merrily. So dividend is a, obviously a big element within say, the UK, uh, but it's not uh, uh, exclusively the UK. The second thing is to say, well, you've got economic growth, and what does that mean? That means progress, if you like. So the underlying system should move forwards, whether it moves forwards by 0.1%, whatever it is. That is a factor that, again, will be reflected within the, the values of the assets that are engaged, if you like, in that scenario, so the market. And then you have the other aspect, which is inflation, which, again, in ordinary terms, it positive, means positive, meaning it's above zero. And if inflation was 2%. So if you like, you're not really expecting a great deal more than you should expect to get from those three simple components. And any progressive uh, company reflected in its equity should indeed be able to not only stand still, but should be able to move forward. And I think sometimes we need to remember some of the basics of why should a share price go forwards? Um, and that is because it is using a number of components, which is not only the initial capital to buy the shares, it's using borrowed money as well to gear up its performance. It's using its ideas, its initiative, and it's using um, the expertise of people as well. And when you put all of those factors into the mix, you are anticipating that you will get more out of that mixture than the components you're putting in in the first place. And so that, if you like, that's, as I say, one of the basic um, premises as to why I believe in equities. Then you say current conditions. I think we've sometimes got to remember that the cheaper things are, so the more uncertain conditions have been, but the cheaper things are, the easier it is to make your 7.5%. And had our in investor had all of his money in the um, FTSE 350 mining index, for example, on the 20th of January, he would have nigh doubled his money by now. But um, hindsight is a great thing. <laughs> so, a brilliant thing. Yeah. But I'm simply yeah. saying if you double your money on a very small part of your portfolio, it really helps. So if you had 2% of your assets in the mining index on the 20th of January, you would have made a whole 1% in just a matter of a few months on just 2% of your assets. So, you know, putting it into perspective, if things are cheap, you know, it's easier yeah. to make your seven and a half. Yeah. But sticking to the issue of um, diversifying, um, you know, I mean, you could put all your money in one area and uh, uh, you could make a lot or you could you could you could lose a lot. Absolutely. Um, and Turning to um, this week's portfolio, now he is, he's not just got his money in one area, but he only holds investment trusts and one ETF. Do you think it's a good idea to limit yourself to one kind of investment vehicle or should investors look across the whole spectrum, spectrum of funds and direct investments? We, we, as independent investment managers, use anything that is available. We aren't constrained whatsoever. We very much like investment trusts. Um, to us, they represent better value in most instances. Uh, take the smaller company arena, for example, in the UK. I could say, why would anybody buy a smaller company unit trust? Um, because you put your pound in, you're paying one pound and five pence or so for the underlying assets. If you sell it immediately, you're losing five percent, etc. You could buy a 
smaller company investment trust. And for your pound, you could be buying £1.25 or £1.30's worth of underlying assets. If it treats at a discount to NAV. Because of the discount yeah. to the net asset value. Now, a lot of advisors, let alone investors, still don't understand how these things happen. And they say, ah, oh, well, the discount shows because it's um, unpopular and it's got higher risk and it's whatever. And I could say, I don't care if the discount remains the same all the way through because I haven't lost anything. I've not gained anything either, but I've not lost anything. But actually, I've actually had an income as well from £1.25 worth of underlying assets, whereas you've only had an income from 95 pence worth of assets in comparative terms, if you see what I mean. So in that sense, there are a number of sectors where the investment trust arena is a vast opportunity that you can engage in. We do use some unit trusts, although not very many. And the reason why we do use them is that because some sectors are not particularly well represented within the investment trust sphere. So in that sense, you know, there, there isn't the opportunity available uh, within the investment trust um, sector, if, if we can call it that, um, for all of the different um, mm. investment assets. I think b- b- bonds like. would probably be a good example, wouldn't it? Bonds, yeah. absolutely. Corporate bonds, um, yeah. I mean, although a, yeah. uh, over the last um, few years, there have been, um, uh, shall I say, interest-related um, yeah. products, yeah. trusts or whatever, that have become available. Um, I was looking at P2P Global this morning, yeah. um, which, which has announced its latest dividend and mm. so on, and, and we supported that at the float. Yeah, it's but it, it, is, it is quite different, because obviously VAT invests in P2P loans, whereas a, um, a corporate bond um, yes. sort of OIC or unit trust is, is investing in, well, corporate bonds to two entirely different parts oh, ab- of a fixed income Absolutely, but the um, point I was going to universe. say is that when yeah. we... we supported it at float we actually mm. sold everything quite soon afterwards because the shares went to a premium yeah and um, they're yeah. now trading at a 10 percent plus discount despite the fact they've done what they said mm. they would do on the tin so i think sometimes we have to be nimble and yes it's not bonds per se although there mm. are bond investment trusts yeah. out there as yeah. well that you can buy but they haven't tended to offer a great deal of 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 of, of, of uh, mainstream uh, uh, opportunity i suppose so yes boringly we have been obliged to buy bond funds, if you like, um, although I, I, we do have quite an exposure now to some of these P2P style um, holdings um, because we, we see them as op- offering um, very, very good value. And yeah. Again, probably yeah. better value than investment grade bonds in many senses, although we have to be very careful, obviously, what we're buying because they aren't investment grade bonds. No, no. OK. Um, now, our reader is open to using ETFs. So to, to return to our um, early discussion, um, he actually wants to dampen volatility in his portfolio by adding some minimum volatility ETFs, which fall into the smart beta arena. Um, do you think that minimum volatility ETFs are a good way for him to lower volatility in his portfolio? Or how would you suggest doing it? Um, looking at his portfolio... Um, it doesn't represent what he thinks he has or wants, if you like. Uh, That's not trying to be patronising to him, but I think he's he's had good results from certain larger holdings within his portfolio. But just because, let's say something doubles, it doesn't mean to say that that was a good investment choice without the volatility or that you've been very happy to enjoy the volatility because it's been favorable volatility rather than negative volatility, if you see what I mean. Mm. So in a way, I I would say for this particular reader, his aspirations are perhaps misguided and that he might be better going back to that 
investment textbook again without me again wishing to be patronizing to him and saying what he needs to do is to remember such things as number one diversify your investments um, not only in terms of the, the range of holdings that you have but also the range of investment um, styles um, and, and areas of the globe that you are looking at and so you know you should have something in lots of different arenas and not be concentrated on some particular cause and not sitting there thinking I've done very well out of worldwide healthcare or whatever because the biotech stroke pharma sector has gone up a lot so I'm feeling chuffed and I'll make sure I have an excessive weighting in this particular sector because it's good isn't it you've got to be disciplined enough to say well it may have been good well done indeed but you need to trim it back and put some money in areas that you haven't got and don't try and jump in after it's already happened um, scenario so that would be how I would suggest to him that he he really needs to concentrate with the sums of money he's got and so on. He would concentrate on how he wants to sort of reduce his his volatility okay. by having a more broadly based portfolio. Yeah, yeah. Now, um, Kate, you actually discussed minimum volatility ETFs in the roundtable. Um, what did the experts there think of these funds? Um, well, as smart beta goes, I think minimum volatility is is one of the areas which is quite popular and actually recently has been proving itself quite uh, adept at minimising volatility. I think the thing they said, um, which I would agree with, is that you need to be very aware of how the ETF is doing it because there are different ways of um, dampening the volatility of an index and those and that means that you know they will perform better or worse in certain market conditions really um, so I mean you need to kind of look at the method to work out whether that is actually what you want um, and also bear in mind that they have quite a short track record so even though actually when you look at these minimum volatility indices for the time that they've been going they definitely have done the trick um, you know, normally you'd want to see a track record of kind of 20 years or something to, to really think that something's been put to the test. So I think they say, yes, these are quite good and they do seem to be kind of worthwhile investments up to a point. Uh, you should also treat them with a measure of caution and just make sure that you know how they are selecting those low volatility stocks and actually whether that's something that you really do want to do. I think that's the other point that's most important as well, that you know, even financial advisors, even investment managers um, need to understand what it is they're investing in. Or shall I say some of these uh, products are so complicated that they are not impossible to understand, but they are beyond comprehension. And I think, therefore, that investors can buy these things and not realize what the outcomes might be through the other side. And you don't want to find a bit like um, an absolute return fund. Not that, again, I'm trying to put them all in the same bracket but you don't want to find that you were in the one that actually well you know it had backtracked uh, back tested so many years of certain scenarios and found that the one that they hadn't allowed for had meant that therefore they are not producing what they expected because an event has come to pass or of course you don't want to find because theoretically investors don't want low volatility they, they want all the upside. They just want to limit the downside when things go against them. And so I think if, if they sadly find that everything else around them has rushed forward and yet they've been in something that has trimmed or sold off or whatever it is to restrict the volatility and therefore obviously missing out also on the upside, that's, that's something that they might well find that they didn't appreciate that they actually had 
or of course the conditions at the time might say that such a thing is is nice again you know we've had a bad downside so people see that as a negative volatility but actually you, you take a probability um, rule to it as well and you could say that the lower something is the greater the probabil- probability of good upside volatility as I'll share sharing with the mining index oh. and so on okay. so it's, it's trying to it's trying to balance all those things and, and sometimes not necessarily buying what you think you ought to have because it's probably the wrong time yeah um, on that note our reader um, said that he doesn't like bond funds but um as you said, he does need to diversify. So, I mean, should investors totally avoid bond funds at the moment or, or what kind of bond funds could they consider? Again, on the, on the bond fund arena, as, as we as a firm have, have tried to do, we've, we've tried to look to see alternatives that are there. There are a few um, quoted um, bond vehicles that I would say you could consider those. Um, 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 Fair Oaks Income is one that comes to mind. Uh, a little spicier is Carador, um, for example. And, and you've got Accenture Debt Strategies. These, these are slightly esoteric around the edges. But I would also throw in uh, some of these P2P lenders on the basis that very often they're doing uh, short-term financing at quite high rates of interest, very diversified portfolios. Um, so you know, even if they do get some bad debts in some areas, which so far, you know, they haven't had, but it doesn't mean to say that it's not going to uh, come to the fore later, particularly if too much of that debt is related to um, residential property development and that whole market could implode, for example. So, you know, the value of your security is somewhat questionable if nobody wants to buy it and it's costing you money to keep the asset and so on. So, but, but you can buy stuff that is different to buying bonds, where, of course, the the fear on buying bonds is that if interest rates go up, of course, you're going to lose on your capital hand and have a very low rate of income as well when that happens. Or not okay. if it will happen, it will happen at some point, but it's when and when seems to keep getting pushed further afield. But if, for example, you're buying, um, say, some of these P2P things, I mentioned P2P Global earlier on, and you're getting a, a 7% gross yield or an 8% gross yield or something, you can almost say, well, you know, I've, I've bought a range of these things. I've diversified myself. I'm getting a very good um, income. So I'm getting a very good compensation that will allow me to um, have some underlying losses, if you like, within these particular um, investment vehicles or for them to have some losses, because actually I'm getting a far superior rate of interest return from those um, to um, investment-grade bonds. Yeah. And, of course, okay. they aren't correlated either to equities or they're not correlated to interest rates insofar no, as interest no. rates go up, okay. they won't be impacted. Yeah, yeah some, some useful points there. Now, the issue of inheritance tax has recently hit the headlines after it was revealed the Prime Minister's mitigating the full effects of this via some clever, albeit legal, financial planning. Um, more generally, though, thousands of families face being hit with a 40% inheritance tax bill as a result of rising property prices, at the same time as many people are struggling to get onto the property ladder. Emma, you've been looking at this issue and speaking to some tax experts, and they seem to think there could be a solution to address both these problems. What are they suggesting? Yes, that's right, Leonora. They're suggesting basically that older people consider skipping the generation when planning their legacy. Um, to pass their wealth down to their grandchildren rather than their children. And they think this is a way in which um, we can potentially limit the um, IHT inheritance tax liabilities that could affect the family. Okay. Now, um, what should you take into consideration? 
before making gifts to grandchildren while you're still alive? Well, um, the main thing is that you need to be sure that you can afford to give um, you know what you what you plan to give, if especially if you want to help out younger generations whilst you're still alive. So the tax professionals that we spoke to were saying that they had seen an increased number of their clients um, being concerned about long term issues of particularly their grandchildren, um, how they're going to get onto the property ladder, how they're going to fund their retirement. Um, and that's why they're suggesting that skipping the generation could be a good way of um, ensuring that wealth is passed down to a generation that can that can actually make use of it compared to say um, the children's generation which have benefited from you know rising property values often have properties already that sort of thing but the main thing if you are considering doing that is to make sure that you are able to give um, you know income or capital whatever it might be you're able to ensure that you can afford that and you also think about the possibility that towards the end of your life you may need to fund um, some time in a care home and often that's extremely expensive so you have to ensure that you've got enough yeah um philip do you think it's a good idea to pass on your wealth to your grandchildren rather than your children it all depends. Um, it depends on ages. And I think um, a lot of our clients who are advising on these sorts of things are wary, not that they don't um, trust their grandchildren, but um, giving a considerable sum of money to a relatively young person isn't necessarily the best thing to do. And I, th- I think it's important to note that there are other ways that that can be done. And indeed, even if you leave money um, to your children, um, on, on your demise, you have to, uh, the beneficiaries have two years to do a deed of variation, so can actually uh, disown the legacy and pass it down a generation if they wish to do that as well. So I think that's quite crucial to, to point that out, um, that, that you know, if, if you are um, a wealthy child and, and your parent has died, for example, you don't have to receive the capital. You can allow it to, to skip you and go down a generation um, but, you know, you do see the problems with, with, with families being broken up because um, one of the members who's inherited a significant sum basically doesn't know how to manage it. It, it is a big responsibility as well. I'm not trying to say don't do it, but it, it's a factor to bear in mind. The housing thing, obviously, is, is, is one that um, appeals. It looks attractive. Um, but again, I'm afraid I put my serious bear hat on and say, you know, in a way, a grandparent doesn't also want to help the grandchild get into a whole load of financial trouble by enabling them to buy a house that is unaffordable because it might not be the best thing for them to do. Yes, it's a great aspiration to own one's own home, but, you know, is this bubble in London particularly going to burst big time? In which case, you know, do you want to saddle your young uh, grandchildren with a colossal debt and possibly significant negative equity? It's, it's points to bear in mind, really. Yeah. But there are other things to do. I mean, mm. we've, we've introduced... Um, um, qualifying business asset portfolios where we actually have got ISAs and portfolios where we, we put within them um, AIM um, shares um, and it's something whereby you know the, the older um, grandparent um, can own these things and they've only got to have them for two years before they're exempt from inheritance tax upon death. So again, sadly, if the grandparent is is a little frail um, and has health issues and, you know, the life expectancy may not be the seven years for a gift, Mm. um, you know, having some of these things is a good thing. And the nice thing about it is they are still the asset of the grandparent. 
so the grandparent can still access that money just as any other investments and can still get the income from it just as any other investments. Okay. But upon death, they're exempt from inheritance tax. Yeah. Um, on the subject of gifts, um, Emma, um, you looked at this. What are some of the ways in which you can gift income? Um, yes, well, the, you know, there's several ways and Philip was, was touching upon them just there. I mean, one of the things that you can do is to gift up to £3,000 a year, um, which you can make completely inheritance um, tax free. You can also gift income uh, as on a regular basis if it's coming out of your um, you know, excess income and it's not going to affect your standard of living. Mm-hmm. So a regular sort of way of giving money to, to your children or grandchildren, that's that option. Um, And then finally, you can also use what's called a potentially exempt transfer. And this allows um, the donor to just, you know, gift assets, including shares and cash um, to to somebody that they want to give that to. It has to be, um, you know, children, grandchildren, for example. And um, the good thing about that is that if the donor survives for more than seven years, Mm. um, it's completely tax free. But even after three years, the amount that you have to pay tapers down. So your inheritance liability, tax liability goes down. Something we've done quite successfully in several occasions is for uh, grandparents or even parents, in fact, if they want to pass money to children um, of of any age, but say over the age of 18, if they've actually um, set up a a monthly um, savings plan, shall I say, into an investment portfolio. Um, And that portfolio could be in the, the parent's name to the account of the child or children. So it really is um, the children's money. Um, and the, the child theoretically could go to court and say, I want my money because it's mine. Mm. But of course, the reality of that happening is rather on the slim side. But what it means is that the, the name on the account has control of that money, or should I say has you know reasonable control of that money. As I say, the, the child could go to court to say, it's really my money. It's, it's an outright gift, but the objective being twofold. Number one, that a regular gift out of surplus income is being made. Um, but secondly, where the, the, the donor still has some control. And possibly one of those controls could be to begin to encourage the child or grandchild to see how an investment strategy can work. In other words, shrewd financial planning mm-hmm. for one's future yes, you can see the statements, but no, you can't have the money sort of scenario. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, 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 and it, as I say, it's, it's, it, it is something that is the child's stroke grandchild's money from day one. Um, but, you know, if, if they did try and cause some grief, I suspect the payments thereafter would dry up. Yeah. So okay. there is some reality involved. But it, it means the, you know, the, the, the donor could keep some um, interest and control in what's actually happening and have some say in, in how that Indeed. capital is invested Okay, as some, well. uh, yeah, some useful suggestions there. Now you can see more ways in which to efficiently pass on your wealth in today's magazine and on the website. That's all we've got time for this week, so it just remains to thank Philip Milton, Chartered Financial Planner at Philip J. Milton & Company, Kate Bealey, Deputy Personal Finance Editor at Investors Chronicle, and Personal Finance Writer Emma Ajimang. You can read more on ETFs, generating returns in current market and economic conditions and tax-efficient ways to pass on your wealth in this week's issue of Investors Chronicle and the website. Thank you for listening. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. 
Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.